Hi, I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, where we look at the life of Jesus through the Gospels as good news for imperfect people, exploring how Jesus found beauty in imperfection. This is Season 1, Episode 6 on Cleaning House. I'm really looking forward to today's podcast because we're going to get a completely different picture of Jesus than what we saw in the last episode. Last time, if you remember, in the story of the wedding in Cana of Galilee, it's where Jesus turned foot-washing water into the finest wine. And I said that the wabi-sabi side of that was how Jesus takes what is ordinary and turns it into something special. He takes ordinary people and transforms them into something special in God's eyes. But now we're in the last half of the second chapter of the Gospel of John, and the passage is going to come at that in kind of an unexpected way that I hope is going to challenge you to think about faith in some new ways. As always, I want to encourage you to follow Gospel Wabi Sabi so you get the new episodes uh, each week, and I hope you'll share the podcast with your friends via your social media accounts and in real human-to-human interactions. I hope you still remember how to do that, even though after all this COVID quarantining. All right, let me give you a chance to open to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, starting with verse 13. I'm going to read all the way to verse 25. hope you'll read along with me. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of them from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about humankind, for he knew what was in each person. Boy, what a distinct change in the personality of Jesus is portrayed by John. The previous wedding story seems lighthearted and fun, and the miracle of changing foot-washing water to wine is, is almost frivolous, like Jesus is pulling a prank on the MC of the wedding by getting him to drink what used to be foot-washing water. Nothing ominous, nothing dangerous, just a good party. And then, boom, the atmosphere changes. Jesus' demeanor changes. No more lighthearted banter. Instead, Jesus is kicking butt and taking names. I mean, what's going on here? Why does John, the gospel writer, want us? what does he want us to take away from this encounter? Well, first of all, we need to deal with one thing. The other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell a similar story, but they all place the cleansing of the temple at the end of Jesus's ministry. It comes right after Jesus rides into Jerusalem in what we now call Holy Week on Palm Sunday, 
rides into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey. And at that point, the machinery of his murder was already in motion. Jesus had been repeatedly warned about coming to Jerusalem. The city's powerful priests and politicians and the Pharisees were all at the center of a conspiracy against him. Jesus knew it was a real snake pit. He had already labeled them as serpents and a brood of vipers, so their hostility was no surprise. He knew what he was walking into. And so in coming to Jerusalem, Jesus did something very unusual, very much out of character. He came into the city in the most public way possible, in a festive, spontaneous parade of celebration of waving palm branches and the shouts of, Hosanna, save us. That wasn't like Jesus. I mean, normally he shunned the spotlight. Normally he did his best work out in the countryside, in the small villages or along the Sea of Galilee, but away from the power brokers and religious elites in Jerusalem. This entrance into the urban center of Israel and then into the great temple, the epicenter of Israel's religious life, it was a conscious kind of in-your-face confrontation. And it was a violent action of aggressive anger on the part of Jesus. John puts that confrontation at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, which has led people to look at this in two ways. Either, first of all, that Jesus cleansed the temple two times, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end, And scholars note that the conversation Jesus has with the Pharisees in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it isn't exactly the same as the conversation in John. So the traditional view is that Jesus cleansed the temple twice. But personally, I I tend to go with the other view, where we recognize that John is not writing a chronological retelling of Jesus's life. He builds his gospel around seven signs or seven miracles and moves events around to fit that theological purpose. Plus, we've already seen that he adds details that were important to him that other Gospels writers uh, omitted because he was there, he heard everything as an eyewitness. And so he adds details, his own color commentary to each story. This event, Jesus is cleansing the temple, is such a dramatic slap in the face to the religious leaders in Jerusalem that I just can't imagine he could get away with it at the beginning of his ministry so publicly during the Passover week, right in the heart of the most sacred place in Jerusalem. It was so confrontational. I think the religious leaders would have killed him right away. It was the approval of the crowds that welcomed Jesus on Palm Sunday that made the religious leaders kind of pause a moment because they were afraid there would be an uprising against them if they went after Jesus at that time. If John's version is a first cleansing, well, Jesus didn't have the backing of the crowds yet. So he would have had no defense. He would have been easy pickings at the onset of his public ministry. So if there's only one cleansing, why would John put it at the beginning? Why place it here? I think because he wanted to show the immediate tension and the antipathy that Jesus had for corrupt religion. And this dramatic act sets the stage for the rest of the drama that plays out between Jesus and the Pharisees and all the other religious leaders. He just showed his power over nature in the miracle at the wedding. And now Jesus is showing his power over religion, religion that's gone sour, that has turned ugly, that's been twisted out of shape. The misuse of the temple offends him to his deepest core. And here's why. In all of the Gospels, the storming of the temple occurred during the week of Passover feast, when the Israelites remembered their great deliverance from slavery in Egypt. The Passover reminded the Jews of how, after hundreds of years of slavery, God had responded to their cries for mercy and justice and freedom. 
God sent Moses as their deliverer, and through God's power, Moses had this epic back-and-forth confrontation with Pharaoh, with plagues and all kinds of unpleasantries. There was one final plague that finally got Pharaoh to relent and okay their release. And then there was a mad scramble by the Israelites to get out of town before Pharaoh changed his mind again. They had to go so fast they didn't even have time to bake bread the normal way with yeast. And during their Passover meal, that flat bread, that unleavened bread, became a symbol of the evil and injustice that they had suffered and also a reminder of God's holiness and his opposition to evil. And so that very week, every Jewish household spent the day before the Passover feast meticulously cleaning their home, going through their house top to bottom to sweep away any kind of yeast, any kind of substance that would cause fermentation. And therefore, uh, they had to cleanse every corner of their home. That symbolic cleanliness or holiness was an absolute necessity in order to properly celebrate the Passover. Yet in a city that was given over to this cleansing of every house, when Jesus comes into the temple, you know, the house of God, he finds that it's a filthy mess. Not because it was filled with yeast or clutter or noise and animals of all kinds, but because the money changers and the merchants were using the holiday to blatantly rip people off and enrich themselves. You see, once a year, every Jewish male had to go to the temple and pay a temple tax. There was no escape. Every male Jew was required to pay a half shekel tax at the Passover season. That tax could not be paid in regular Roman or Greek coins. It had to be paid in a special temple coin. So people had to exchange their Roman or Greek coins uh, that they commonly used to exchange that for the special temple tax coin. That was fine in itself. Money changers were required for that. Having them available for the people as a convenience, that was okay. But what was wrong was the exorbitant price being extorted for making this exchange. The money changers charged a fee that was almost as much as half of the value of the money being exchanged. So that's like a 50 cent fee for every dollar exchange. I mean, a total ripoff. And what's even worse, the temple leaders got a big kickback from the money changers for letting it happen. During the Passover season, sometimes as many as 2 million people were in the city of Jerusalem. It's a lot of shekels. So there was a tremendous racket going on. And on top of that, temple sacrifices had to be offered at the Passover season, and the animals used had to be without blemish or imperfection. If an animal was blind in one eye, if it had a scar on the skin, or the coloring wasn't right, the animal was just rejected. That was the law from the Old Testament. So people knew to bring their very best. But the way this con worked was someone when someone brought an animal of his own to offer, it had to be examined by the priest. And then the priest would almost certainly reject the animal. The priest would find something wrong with it. And this meant that the only animals that were acceptable had to be purchased from the temple herd that was kept in the court of the Gentiles. These animals had already been approved by the priest, but again, at tremendously inflated prices. For example, historians tell us that a bird could be bought outside the temple for the equivalent of 15 cents in today's money. But that same bird bought inside the temple from the authorized purveyors of animals would cost as much as $15. That's like buying a $20 hot dog at a professional football game. It was pure criminal extortion. And that was what aroused the flaming anger of Jesus against these swindlers and schemers. So great was his anger that the Gospel of John tells us that he made a whip. 
he made a whip. That means he took some individual cords that held the animals and wove them together into a whip. And he used that whip to drive these extortioners out of the temple. Now think about that for a moment. He didn't just go off half-cocked, didn't lose control, didn't just throw a temper tantrum. Jesus didn't have anger management issues. This wasn't road rage in the temple. He was composed enough to make a whip. But then he starts swinging that whip like Indiana Jones. I mean, Jesus is a one-man riot, flipping over tables, literally putting the fear of God into these scammers. And one thing that's different here in John's telling of the story is that it implies that Jesus hit people with that whip. The other gospels seem to imply he only used the whip to get the animals moving, but that's not the way John tells it. It says in verse 15 that he drove all from the temple courts, including the animals. The way I read and understand the Greek text is that means people felt the sting of his whip. Jesus did violence. His anger turned into violence. Does that fit into your image of who Jesus is? Jesus angry enough to blacken an eye or leave a scar from where the whip drew blood? Does that anger fit into your mental picture of Jesus? Or is your mental image more like that old Sunday school portraits of the pale, weakly looking Jesus meekly holding a little lamb? A Mr. Rogers kind of Jesus in a cardigan sweater who just wants everyone to feel warm and fuzzy and welcome and have a cup of hot cocoa. Do not diminish or minimize the anger and the violence which Jesus manifested at this time. This is a different Jesus than many people imagine him to be. This is a passage omitted by those who just kind of want a nice culturally acceptable Jesus. Oftentimes we think of him as being so loving and understanding that he just lets us get by with anything. That seeing our evil, he puts his hand on our shoulder and just says, it's all right, don't worry about it. Many people think of him that way. But this is Jesus expressing a tiny smidgen of the judgment of God. He opens the door of God's judgment on sin just a crack and then he shuts it. Judgment for sin. You know, yeah, that's a real thing. The judgment of God. And in his righteous anger, Jesus drove these people and the animals out of the temple. Now, it's important to see that his anger was under control. Like I said earlier, the Greek word used in the story describes Jesus as weaving the whip together. He didn't just fly off the handle. This was a calculated, controlled thing. He wasn't a raging lunatic, furiously striking out against anybody and everybody around him. It was a controlled anger. And as he weaves the whip, we hear him saying, My father's house is a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a flea market. And we will see that same righteous anger when Jesus comes again to judge the world. And at that time, some will hear his most terrifying words, which are, Depart from me, I never knew you. Where does this anger come from in Jesus? It comes from Jesus' own divine nature as the second person of the Trinity, from his divine appointment as the Son of God and God's Messiah, God's Deliverer. It comes from God's own holiness. Let's do a little Theology 101. God is the supreme being, right? That's the very different uh, definition of a monotheistic God. Supreme overall, no competitors, no rivals, no equals, not even close. Creator and sustainer of all things visible and invisible. Omnipotent, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. That means all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing. And so because God is supreme, because God is the one who created all things, God sets the rules for his creation. There's no debating, no voting, no focus groups. God defines what is good 
based on his own nature, his own will, and his own decide design. What is in harmony with his nature, his will, and his design is called good. That's what good means. Everything that reflects God's own nature and purpose and being, that's what good is. Everything that is contrary to God's nature, God's will, or God's design is called evil. Everything that is anti-God is evil and is incompatible with God's kingdom. And eventually it will have no place in his eternal kingdom. It cannot because God's eternal kingdom would not be a reflection then of God's perfect nature. It would be an imperfect place and flawed and tainted. I mean, put one drop of poison in a glass of water. Are you going to drink it? No, because one drop contaminates the whole glass. God's heaven will not have one drop of sin or evil in it because it will be a reflection of God's perfect nature. We live in a world that has rebelled against God's nature, God's will, and God's design. We see that every single day. A world that has rebelled against God's holiness. And this rebellion, both individually and collectively, that's what the Bible calls sin with a capital S. And God hates it when he sees the sins, the things we do to ourselves and to others that are the symptoms of this deeper brokenness between us and our Creator. God hates it for how it goes against God's own nature, but also hates it because of the damage this evil does to God's children. The misery, the pain, the anguish that evil causes his creation. The heartache, the grief, the anxiety. Every day God sees the damage done every day, and he hates the pain that our rebellion brings upon us. As a world, we are reaping what we have sown, and God hates to see us suffer and the suffering we flicked on each other whether it's through the kind of extortion we see in this morning's scripture or through the million other ways we do damage to ourselves and to others and to our planet. The overarching word to describe this desire from God for his world to work right, for the world to work the way it's supposed to, for life to operate according to God's nature, God's will, and God's design, that word in scripture is justice. Justice, biblical Justice. It's not exactly the same as the secular definition of the word. Biblical justice is setting things right, setting things in order and in harmony with the holiness of God so that things reflect the very nature and character of God. God's desire for justice is seen throughout scriptures. Here's just a few verses from the Psalm. Psalm 33, 5. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Psalm 50, verse 6, the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. Psalm 89, verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. In Psalm 103, verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. And in scripture, God's sense of justice gets down to specifics. It's reflected in the Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses. I mean, go back and read Exodus 23 for examples of that. Lying, false testimony, favoritism in the courts, either for or against a poor person, stealing, unfair, unfair criminal sentencing, bribery, the oppression of foreigners, all those are things that offend God and go against God's justice, God's nature, God's will, God's design. There are hundreds of verses in the Bible about how justice is an expression of the very nature and character of God. Like Isaiah 61, verse 8. For I, the Lord, I love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. 
Maybe Jesus had that verse in mind as he went after the people who were robbing the Passover worshipers. That verse from Isaiah tells us that justice is a part of God's covenant love for his people. That means by putting this into the law of Israel, God wants his people to reflect God's own holiness and goodness in society. God wants his people to pursue justice in their dealings with others because that's who God is. That's the character of the God they worship, and that's what God wants for his world. If you say you worship God, then you have to be a person who pursues his kingdom sense of justice in this world. And that means it's okay to share Jesus's anger when you see situations of injustice in our world. Now, we don't often identify with the anger of Jesus. We like all those other emotions a lot more, love and mercy and kindness and compassion and patience. But if being a Christian means becoming more and more like Jesus through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, then one growth area for you and for me might be in how to get in touch with the righteous anger of Jesus. And I said righteous anger. It's easy just to get angry. Anybody can do that. That takes no skill or finesse or spiritual depth. Lots of people with destructive anger issues. But to be angry about the right things at the right time, in the right degree, and in the right way, that takes some serious Holy Spirit intervention. I mean, there's so many things going on around us every day that are contrary to the holiness of God, his nature, his will, his design. So many ways people act or treat each other, whether in personal behavior, economic greed, sexual exploitation, uh, the, the, so many things that offend the holiness of God, we don't even bat an eye to them anymore. It's just become part of the background noise because human depravity is just everywhere. It's the ocean we swim in. And every once in a while, we're confronted with the terrible injustices of our world, and we wake up, maybe because it hits close to home, and we feel it more. And for many of these unjust situations, anger is a godly response. Anger is the godly response. Just take the last couple of years. We, sh we should feel anger when we see, see racial groups of people targeted with violence or hatred. We should feel offended by that and stand against that because it's wrong and does not reflect the kind of world our God of holiness desires. We should feel anger when innocent people are murdered in a grocery store or school or shot down on the street. I mean, as of November 1st of this year, 679 people have been shot and killed in the city of Chicago alone. That's just wrong. It's wrong on a human level, but it also grieves the holiness of God. That's not the world God wants, and it should offend us. But here's the thing. Your anger as a Christian at injustice has to be tempered by the Holy Spirit, because otherwise you'll just be angry all the time. If you don't have the Holy Spirit in control of your emotional response— You'll just be angry all the time because there are just so many unjust situations in our world. Do a quick perusal of one day's issue of the Wall Street Journal or some other national newspaper. And just see what justice issues they report that Christians ought to be concerned about. Racial and ethnic violence, shootings, the exploitation and trafficking of Asian women and children and men, anti-Semitism, crime, looting, or worldwide, the genocides that are going on, persecutions against the Rohingya people by the Burmese or Miramar government, ethnic cleansing against the Karen people, also by the Burmese government, continuous civilian casualties in the civil war in Syria, malnutrition crisis in the African country of Mali, brought about by groups that are just using food as a weapon. 
More girls kidnapped from their schools in Nigeria, held for ransom by that Islamic fundamentalist group Boko Haram. Sexual misconduct, sexual assault, and the cover-ups that seem to follow. Political corruption, power grabs, how ego corrupts public life, the line-of-duty death of a firefighter responding to a call, the mistreatment of the Kurdish people in Iraq and Iran and Turkey, the growing border crisis, children being trafficked in the U.S. by Mexican drug cartels, the persecution of Christians in Pakistan, the hundreds of thousands of COVID-related deaths in the U.S., millions of deaths worldwide. These are all things that should offend our sense of justness and rightness if our hearts are aligned with the Lord. There's so much that we could be angry about. And that's just one section of one newspaper for one day. We can't possibly care about them all. We should share Jesus's righteous anger when we see injustice. But there's no way we can carry that kind of load. We don't have that kind of capacity. We don't have that kind of anger capacity. Our anger circuits would just overload. We can't shoulder the weight of the world's sin. We can't possibly care about all those injustices with equal fervor because evil is just everywhere. Evil, it permeates our world. And even if we fix one problem, evil is going to pop up somewhere else. It's like a spiritual whack-a-mole. You hit this problem over here and then it pops up again over on the other side. And so you keep whacking away and you have to start over again with each new generation. And that's the danger of becoming a Christian, a Christian justice warrior, you know, a social justice warrior. They're just angry all the time because we can't possibly fix the world in all respects. We cannot create an earthly utopia. We believe in working for the kingdom, but we're not going back to Eden on this planet. We can't bring about the kingdom of God by our efforts. It's foolish and bad theology to think that we can make this world perfect. And the people who think we can go off track, and the people who think we can go off track in two ways. First, they begin to see the church as a means to an end. That first, you know, the, the, their belief in justice is part of their faith, and then it becomes the most important part of their faith, and then it becomes kind of the definition of their faith, and then their faith only exists to support that justice issue. The church is just a means to attack their particular issue. Or second, they eventually just give up on the church and go and, and to a degree kind of give up on Jesus or only see Jesus as a means to that end and not an end in himself. Historically, the danger for Christian justice warriors is that they eventually become so frustrated, so angry that they give up on the church and even give up on God because the world is not getting fixed according to their timetable. And some Christian social justice warriors out of their frustration turn to and begin to resort to evil to try to fix evil. You know, the ends justifies the means. The solution to handling bigotry turns into censoring ideas that they disagree with or suppressing free speech. This cancel culture is an expression of this kind of frustration, trying to destroy people who don't fall into line with the perceived perceptions of what is right or wrong. No disagreement, no dissent allowed. Historically, the frustrated justice warriors become the oppressors, and then they become the very evil that they say they oppose. That's happened over and over again in history. Our anger at injustice has to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, and we simply cannot bring the same level of concern to all the issues out there. So we all have selective outrage 
over the injustices of the world. We all have selective outrage over the injustices of the world based on what is most important to us personally. So don't get mad at people if they don't automatically share your same level of interest or outrage on any particular issue. What may be God's calling on your life to get involved and to make a difference may not be someone else's calling. And when God stirs up in you an issue of injustice, you can and you should do your uppermost to address that issue as an expression of your love for God and his children. Make sure, though, that the issue matches up with Scripture, with God's nature, God's will, God's design, and then pray about what God would have you do and how you might make a positive difference. In Isaiah, God says he loves justice and that justice is a part of his everlasting covenant with his people. God makes covenants throughout Scripture. Biblical covenant is a type of agreement that usually outlines both blessings and curses. There's the covenant of creation, the covenant with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David. And then with Jesus, who, when Jesus came, he said in that Holy Week upper room Passover meal that he was bringing a new covenant. And the communion celebration and baptism would be the signs of this new covenant. The secret of this new covenant is that it would bring together God's anger and God's mercy, God's justice and God's forgiveness, because that's the only lasting solution to the sin problem that afflicts our world. That's what the people of Jerusalem were hoping for when they shouted Hosanna to Jesus. Hosanna means save us. And that's what they knew the Messiah was supposed to do. This new covenant answers the question, how can God be both just and loving at the same time? If God is loving, how can he judge people and condemn sin? If God is just, how can he forgive? These questions meet in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the one who is able to satisfy both God's love and God's justice. The two are not contradictory principles, as some may assume. And so they work together. For example, for a long time, uh, people said humans will never fly, you know, because it defies the laws of gravity. The downward pull of gravity is just too strong. But combine the downward pull of gravity with the upward lift of air pressure, and you have flight. The secret is in the design of the wing. The bottom of the airplane wing is flat, the top of the wing is curved, so as the airplane moves forward, the air passing over the top of the wing must travel a little further distance than the air passing under the wing. This produces a vacuum at the top of the wing, and the nature abhors a vacuum, so nature exerts pressure, and the wing lifts to fill it. Flight is possible because the two principles work together. Forgiveness is possible because the principles of justice and mercy meet in Jesus. The cross is like the wing of the airplane. The cross deals with both the penalty of human sin, the mercy of God himself, because Christ takes the punishment we deserve upon himself. God's anger at injustice and God's love towards those who are unjust, they perfectly intersect at the cross. This touches one of the great paradoxes of our Christian faith. Throughout the Gospels, we see plainly how anyone can come to Christ no matter what their background no matter how far they've gone wrong, no matter how evil that they have been, murderers, prostitutes, swindlers, liars, perverts, drunkards, self-righteous, bitter, hard-hearted cynics, hypocrites, proud, self-sufficient snobs, anyone who realizes there is something wrong or his or her life, that something has seized them, gripped them, and introduced evil, hurt, and pain, and heartache, anyone who wants to be free can come to Jesus. 
Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and weighed down by life's heavy burden, and I'll give you rest. That's Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Anyone can come. In watching Jesus clear the temple, I believe the disciples saw something new, understood perhaps for the first time, that if you come to Jesus, he's not playing around. You can be assured that if you come to him, Jesus is not going to leave you the way you are. As Pastor Tim Keller is fond of saying, the gospel is come as you are, but not stay as you are. The justice and mercy of Christ tell us that God loves us just the way we are, and he loves us too much to let us stay that way. Jesus is coming, and he's coming at your life with a crowbar. He's looking for a change of heart. He's looking for repentance that leads to new life. And he's looking for people who can join him in facing the injustices of our world by being angry at the right time, in the right way, and for the right reasons. So here are a couple of questions for you to think about this coming week. What normally makes you angry? What normally makes you angry? What should make you angry? And how will you deal with your anger in a godly way? It's a lot to think about. I hope you have a great week.